Hello and welcome to another episode of At Any Rate. I'm your host, Natasha Kanova, Head of Commodities Research at JP Morgan. And today I would like to talk about the Biden administration's framework for a new international order. But first, a little bit of history. Even as World War II raged in Europe, um, the economic leaders from 44 nations met in Bretton Woods, uh, New Hampshire, United States in July 1944 to discuss a post-war future. Uh, the outcome of that meeting was the establishment of a system of rules and institutions like uh, the IMF and what later became the World Bank, but also procedures uh, to connect global markets and promote economic growth. Uh, the outcome of that meeting was the creation of the Bretton Woods system, and behind uh, that system was the hope that uh, stronger international economic coordination and cooperation would prevent another world war. So today, more than 75 years later, in a special address at the Atlantic Council on April 13th, uh, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for a new Bretton Woods framework and a revamp of the IMF and World Bank institutions. Uh, Secretary Yellen made it clear that Russia's invasion of Ukraine marked a pivot point for the global economy, uh, necessitating a realignment in the U.S. trade objectives from free to free but secure. Um, Secretary Yellen says that going forward, U.S. trade policy would no longer involve uh, just merely leaving markets to their own devices, but would rather uphold a set of core values and principles, such from you know, national security and rules-based global order to data protection and human rights. Um, under the new trade order, supply chains would be favored with many trusted countries that share a set of norms and values about how to operate in the global economy, and about how to run the global economic system, um, the, the so-called French shoring. That's what uh, the, the term that was coined by, by the secretary. So essentially, Treasury Secretary Yellen linked trade with values. So what does it mean for commodities? So in general, uh, our understanding is that pertaining to commodities, this new trade order would realign supply chains among, among like-minded partners. Uh, with excess upstream reserves uh, that ensure the availability, affordability, security, and sustainability of natural resources. Um, so under such other economic efficiency will no longer act as the driving force for relocation, uh, as the decision for partnership will be based on political considerations. Um, under such scenario, downstream processing capacities like smelting and refining would also need to be built out um, but the necessary outcome of this proposed new trade order are significantly higher costs of production and supply chain redundancy. So by all means, all of that is it's very inflationary. Um, the management of strategic and commercial inventories will also have to change, uh, replacing the just-in-time supply chain with just-in-case. Um, in practicality, that means that uh, the OECD strategic inventories of commodities like oil, uh, metals, and grains would have to increase significantly from the current levels. So what does it mean in practice? Um, so in practice, uh, we just need to look country by country by country and just to look at the geological and geographical endowments of particular countries. So in the case of the United States, the geography and geology of the country provide uh, a tremendous comparative advantage in building its economy. So US has a large land mass with temperate climates, fertile soil, fresh water, and uh, the country's fortunate to be surrounded by friendly neighbors. So if you look at the geography of the United States, the Great Plains, this is the area between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains, has long been a breadbasket of the world, 
large acreage of fertile farmland, abundant water, uh, cutting edge agriculture innovations and the low cost river-based transportation system. All of that combined has enabled the United States to both feed its own people, but also populations across the globe. Um, US is also fortunate to have abundant energy resources that fuel its economy and uh, give its economy a, a distinct advantage. So if you look at U.S. endowment, the U.S. combined the U.S. oil, gas, and coal reserves amount for one-fifth of global energy reserves. So in the case of gas, U.S. is number one, and oil number three, and then coal is number one. So U.S. actually is the world's largest producer of oil and natural gas today, but it's also the leading producer of coal and has been for decades. Um, so crucially, I would like to point out that while the nation's theoretical energy and food independence hasn't insulated um, you know, clearly, it's, it's theoretically independent, but at the same time, it hasn't insulated the economy from a spike in energy and food prices. But at the same time, it does provide the geopolitical security and relative cost advantage. So just you know, looking at the natural gas prices as they have skyrocketed across the world, uh, Europe and Asia are paying up to nearly five times more for natural gas than the U.S. is paying today. But what is uh, important to keep in mind is that despite its leading position in agriculture and energy, U.S. is lacking ge geological endowment in minerals. Um, and so, for example, minerals used in emerging technologies that are very important to economic development and national security. Um, so rare earths clearly is one of them. Um, so while the US military scientists developed the most widely used today type of rare earth magnet uh, that was developed during the World War II, and actually the majority of the rare earth supply between 1960s and 1980s was actually provided uh, by a mine in California. Um, but China spent the last 30 years building a monopoly over the sector. So today there's only one rare earth mine in the United States and there is no processing capacity. So all of that has to be shipped to China, processed in China, and after that re-imported back into the United States. Uh, similarly, the U.S. is heavily reliant on imports of key materials used in battery and clean energy supply chains. Um, so the nation the nation imports all graphite and manganese, uh, most of the cobalt and half of the lithium and nickel used domestically. Um, so imports of some minerals are highly concentrated to one country, meaning that logistical issues in a single country might significantly impact the overall industry. Uh, just some numbers, uh, more than 90% of the US imported lithium comes from Argentina and Chile. And Gabon, for example, produces almost 70% of the manganese imported by the United States. So in our work, uh, and please um, uh, read the report that's attached uh, in this email, we ranked the number of commodities by country with the greatest proved reserves of natural resources. So what we concluded is that U.S. sits clearly in a unique position. So it holds more reserves in gas, coal, and agriculture than any other country. Um, so, but... You know, natural conclusion of that is that in a world fractured by alliances, the U.S. should treat its energy and agriculture industries as uh, geopolitical assets that they are. Uh, but at the same time, as we discussed previously, U.S. is lacking minerals. And so among the potential lists of trusted countries that share a set of um, similar norms and values with United States, Australia and Canada stand out. So both countries have vast reserves of industrial metals, but also large deposits of energy minerals, making them great locations for an energy-intensive smelting industry, which the U.S. is lacking. 
um, Latin American countries like Brazil, Chile, and Peru are also rich in commodities that the U.S. is short of. Um, the final point I would like to make is that um, the reality is that developed economies are short commodities by policy decision. And, um, you know, when we look at commodities in general as an asset class, commodities are massively, uh, they require massive amount of capital. Uh, however, depressed returns over the last decade uh, combined with the most stringent regulatory, including ESG landscape, uh, has diminished the appeal of sector among capital providers. Um, so this in turn has drained financial support for the sector, um, ranging from asset managers moving away from commodities as an investable asset class to banks selling physical trading divisions and stepping back from uh, financing physical commodities. Um, policy, um, particular environmental and financial regulatory policy also have contributed to capital deficits in commodities. So energy clearly stands out as one commodity that is uh, lacking investment, uh, but at the same time, even in metals, uh, where demand in general will benefit from the energy transition, environmental justice policies have elongated permitting for mining and, uh, and resulted to in elevated costs. Uh, so, for example, if we look, it's, it's almost impossible to build a, smelt, a smelter or refinery in the United States at the moment. In contrast, policy in China has been stable and supportive of investment into commodity supply chains. Um, so as the world's largest single consumer of raw materials, it is easy to see why Chinese policymakers have viewed the sector as a strategically important Along with oil and gas, steel, copper, nickel, and aluminum have been crucial ingredients uh, in China's rapid economic development. And China's ability to control the value chain for these commodities has been limited just because it doesn't have, uh, the, it has limited geological endowment. And the government has stated taking greater control uh, as a top national priority. The benefits of no longer being at the mercy of a limited number of uh, large scale foreign suppliers of commodities outweigh the higher cost of local production. So if you look what happened in China over the last two economic recessions, actually, the country took the opportunity to refocus spending on commodity supply securities, and they invested upstream in international resources for commodities where Chinese reserves are lacking. They also expanded processing capacities domestically, and they stockpiled strategic inventories at relatively depressed recessionary prices. So aluminum is an excellent um, illustration of this domestic capacity build out. Uh, so China spent a sizable chunk of its 2009-2010 economic stimulus package on massively increasing its melting capacity domestic output. So just for example, before, uh, before the crisis, uh, share, China's share of global primary aluminum supply chain increased from about 27% to nearly 50% by 2012. Um, so looking at all major base metals, for example, combined, China's share of global production has gone from only around 10% in 2006 to, to nearly 45% today, so massive expansion. Very similar, uh, looking further upstream in the commodities where China lacks domestic geological resources, it has actually been a very aggressively buying um, production streams via joint ventures uh, or other investment partnerships abroad. And just to give an example, uh, Congo, there are 17 cobalt mines in Congo, 15 of them at the moment uh, have Chinese ownership. Uh, Nikko is a, a, another example, yes, was massive expanded, expansion of Chinese capacities in, in Indonesia. 
Um, so the U.S.-China trade war exposed some vulnerability in China's supply chains, particularly in energy. Uh, so China imports from uh, more than 90% of China's domestic oil demand and 40% of its gas demand. Uh, as a result, China has accelerated plans to secure its energy requirements uh, via renewable alternatives, but at the same time, uh, it also has been looking to secure uh, supplies of traditional hydro, hy uh, hydrocarbons, inking deals in both 2014 and 2022 today for Russian uh, gas and oil assets uh, at relatively attractive levels. So please uh, read our report, uh, reach out to us with any questions. Uh, thank you all for joining me today. Uh, thank you all to listening to the Commodities Edition at JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. We look forward to continue the conversation next week. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on May 13, 2022.